if you're looking for something fun to do with your family, uh, got a little bit of challenge, make some memories, I uh, got a suggestion. There's a race called the Insane Inflatable Course, and uh, here's some pictures of it. I'm pretty familiar with it uh, because my brother is the founder of it, and he actually designed it, my youngest brother. Uh, it's kind of all around the country. There'll be over a quarter million people that'll do this race, and it's, it's, a, it's a 5K. So anybody know how many miles that is? 3.1. got a few runners in our midst or somebody with good with math. All right, you got 3.1 miles, and even that is a challenge. However, you got all these different obstacles. Now, you can't get hurt. They're a lot of fun, but you got like a 20-foot wall. Uh, you got another place that's got all these wrecking balls, and you have to kind of go through them. Lots of fun. You finish, you go down the slide. There's this sense of accomplishment. You even get like a little medal. You can kind of wear it at home, at school, at work. I mean, it's awesome, and you have a great time. And I tell you about it because, uh, you know, it's fun to do some things like that where you know you're not going to get hurt. Uh, you're going to go through some obstacles and you accomplish something. I want you to know that life is like an obstacle course. But far from like, well, it's just kind of fun, just these giant inflatables, no one gets hurt. I want you to know that in this world, you can get banged up and bruised, damaged, discouraged. It can even devastate you. And not only are the challenges all around us, Really, probably the biggest challenges are the ones that lie within us. There are so many obstacles to living and walking with God in this life. And the question that you need to be able to answer this question is this. Why is walking with God so difficult in a fallen world? How do you make it? What do you do? Well, as we were making our way through the book of 2 Timothy... Chapter 1, he talks about the treasure of the gospel. In chapter 2, he gives us a picture of what does it look like to be transformed by grace, to have this mission of making disciples, of passing on the truths of Christ and bringing people to the fullness of maturity. Chapter 2, verse 2. And then he talks about the challenges that will be you'll be facing. But when you get to chapter 3, he starts painting the picture of just how difficult it will be to walk with God in this life. Now, he's going to talk about the challenges that are out there. And what he's doing is he's, he's kind of presenting these, these realities so you and I are not surprised and thrown off. Furthermore, he tells us because you and I are called to represent Christ, to bring the gospel forth, and to help make disciples. But you need to know that that is going to be very challenging and very difficult. And the other thing that when he highlights just how difficult it'll be, This really, what it does, is shows us just how powerful God's grace is. Now, I believe the Apostle Paul was, for the most part, a pretty optimistic guy. In the 15 to 20 years of ministry that he had, once he became a believer in Christ, God used him for a lot of good. And now, there were some times where he was discouraged. We know at one occasion in 2 Corinthians that he was even depressed. Don't get thrown off if you go there. But Paul, though he was an optimist, was also a realist. And he understood that there are some serious difficulties to walking with God in this life. Victory is assured, and you can anticipate it. But the battles, you're going to face them on a regular basis, and you need to be prepared. You cannot make it through life if you forget the sovereignty of God, His goodness, or His grace. But you need to beware of the challenges you will face. Why is it so difficult to walk with God in a fallen world? Well, let me show you. Chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Look at the difficulties we will face. He says, 
But realize this, in the last days, difficult times will come. The word realize is the idea of to know. And he says, present imperative, you need to keep realizing this, keep knowing this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Last days are from the time of the birth of Jesus to his second coming. So the eternal son of God enters into humanity, all part of God's divine plan. He lives a perfect life. And he dies as this perfect sacrifice to pay the penalty for the sins of humanity. And he rises again on the third day. And one of the things that Jesus said in his public ministry, as well as after his resurrection, is, I am coming back. I want you ready. I am going to return. But between the time of his birth and the time of his return, it is known as the last days. And he says, these last days will be described as difficult times. The famous Greek writer uh, Plutarch used this word difficult to describe an ugly, infected, dangerous wound. That's what it'll be like living in this world. And what you're going to find, beginning in verse 2, is kind of like an autopsy on depravity. You want to know what life in this world and what flesh looks like He is going to describe it. It could be described as savage times, difficult times. And he says, verse 2, for men will be lovers of self. That word men, anthropos, uh, it's referring to both young and old, male and female. It's the general word for people, for humanity. He says, in the last time, people, men, they're going to be lovers of self. They are going to be consumed. We could call it narcissism, where the idea is that all of life revolves around you. And so you only think about life as how it might affect you. And so he says, in the last time, difficult times will come because men, people, will be lovers of self. You see, it's kind of like there's this throne in a human heart, and it only has place for one. And if God isn't on the throne of your life, meaning he's not the Lord of your life, Something or someone else will move in, and loving self is a great supplement. And so that's exactly what happens. People will be lovers of self, and when the center of gravity moves to not around God, but around yourself, a plethora of sins, depravity runs wild and manifests in a person's life. And he says, so men will be lovers of self, and lovers of Money. You see, if you're the God of one's lo- your life, uh, you're a lover of self, then you're going to want to occupy yourself with as much pleasure and possibilities as you can find. And so he says men will be lovers of money. This has the idea of materialism, where you literally just crave finances, resources. After all, you find your sense of peace and identity and purpose in what you can accumulate and what you have. So he's not talking about uh, having just the general uh, right aspect toward money, that you earn money to live, to provide for your family, to care for needs, to give. He's not talking about that. He's talking about when money has you. It's not wrong for you to have wealth. I'm sure we've got folks in our church that are wealthy. Compared to the rest of the world, we are all wealthy. And it's not wrong to have wealth. The problem is it's wrong when wealth has you. Because when it has you, 
It changes your whole orientation. Instead of seeing yourself as made in the image of God for God and his glory to to know him and enjoy him. Well, now it's all about you, because after all, you're a lover of self. Materialism easily creeps in because after all, it it makes logical sense. Now, I want you to understand it's not wrong to have money and you need to work. Second Thessalonians 310 says that if a person will not work, neither shall he. Does anybody read second Thessalonians? Eat. Wow, that's good. Don't work. Well, you shouldn't be surprised if you don't eat. What he's talking about there is you've got to be careful about the love of wealth. And then he goes on to say, in these last times, people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful. Uh, This has the idea of someone claiming greatness that they probably don't even really possess. They have this inflated sense of self-importance. They're they're know-it-alls. They are always putting their talents and reputations uh, out there. Because think of it. Hey, listen, if the most important thing is you and you want to talk about something that's important, then what do you have to talk about? Yourself, right? That makes sense. Because after all, there, what could be more important than me? So <laughs> let's start talking more about me because after all, if you're a lover of self, don't be surprised if you are boastful and you have this inflated sense of self-importance and, and directly tied to being boastful. Next word, he describes these last times as people will be arrogant. It has the idea of superiority toward others. By the way, this was Satan's quintessential sin and quality. Come on. All these people worshiping God as the most high. I want a little bit of that. And so he falls and he takes others with him. And he seeks to bring the same sin of pride and manifest it full bore in the lives of other people. And so they're referred to as arrogant. By the way, When Jesus, when he was on this earth, this is one of the major issues he confronted with religious people. Remember in talking with the Jewish religious leaders, it says this in Luke chapter 18. He says, Jesus was talking to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Because after all, you're a lover of self. You're boastful and arrogant. You know what happens? You have a tendency to view others in a a manner that despises them. They're less than you. And you have a way of conveying that. So remember, Jesus told the parable about the tax collector and the Pharisee that were praying. The Pharisee is praying to himself, talking and telling God how wonderful he is and all the things that he didn't do. The tax collector is beating his breast. He can't even look up because he's like, man, I'm a sinner. You know it, and I know it. But the last days, folks are just going to be arrogant. And friends, this is so prevalent in our culture. There's a gal, I think some of you are familiar with her, named Kathy Griffin. She's been in the news lately. But this isn't the first time that she's done things that are just like, whoa, shock and awe. In 2007, when she received and accepted her Emmy, uh, Kathy Griffin said this, quote, A lot of people come up here and thank Jesus for this award. I want you to know that no one had less to do with this award than Jesus. And then she went on as she held up her Emmy. She made an off-color remark about Jesus. And then she said this, this award is now my God. Shouldn't surprise us. In the last days, difficult times will come. People will be boastful, arrogant. Notice the next word. They will be revilers. This is the Greek word blasphemos. Guess what word we get from blasphemos? Blasphemy. Blasphemy. 
It has the idea that you will curse or slander or treat uh, someone with contempt. Now, we kind of reserve blasphemy when we use the word to treating God with contempt. But the word could be used not only for treating God with contempt, it could be treating others with a general sense of denigrating them, treating them as inferior. And you need to understand something that whatever is going on inside your heart will be expressed with your mouth. The mouth always speaks from that which fills the heart. That's what Jesus said. And so this idea that you revile people, guess where that comes from? It's going on in your heart. It's a condition of humanity. And then notice this. This one is troubling. In the last days, look at verse 2. People will be disobedient to parents. This moral degradation will extend even to the rejection of the most intimate of human ties. You see, even parents will not be spared this abuse. Remember when God was giving the Ten Commandments? The fifth one is, anybody know? I know some of you kids have it blazoned on your walls, right? It's honor your father and mother, right? And that's so important because God understands the fundamental importance of the human family. Strong families require that children would actually obey their parents. And what this looks like is that you respect them, you are polite to them, you are courteous, you do not demean them, and yet... Uh, What happens here in the last days is that folks are going to be disobedient to their parents. Let me tell you what this looks like. You you treat them with disdain. You you reject whatever house rules. Man, when you are out of the house, you are free to mock them. And you do. The counsel that they have given you in life, let's say that you've grown and you've left their home, you reject it. You make fun of it. It's old-fashioned. Not for me. And I will tell you that when parents are not honored and respected, disobedience naturally results. And what happens is families fall apart. I want you to think about our society in which we live today. Disobedient to parents. If you don't think that this is such a big deal, let me tell you that if if a child cannot learn to respect and honor their parents in their home, which is, by the way, the role of the child. And as parents, we want to cultivate that in our family. It's not that parents are perfect, right? Your kids, parents, your kids know that you're not perfect. So just tell them. Don't pretend that you are. They know that you're not. But they are required to respect you and honor you. Why is this so important? Because if a child cannot learn to respect and honor their parents while they're in their home then they will find that they can reject authority wherever they find it. In school, with the coaches, with the director, uh, when they get a job, that authority, their boss, is a subject for ridicule, or you can just kind of, well, they're watching, you'll do your thing, but when they're not, you're on your own program. And let me tell you what it culminates with. A rejection, even at a home level, disobeying parents, disregarding them, it can easily lead to just a rejection and a disregard to God, who is the authority. After all, this got started very early on. He says in the last days, folks are going to be disobedient to parents. Look at this next one. They will be ungrateful. They won't appreciate anything. 
they never express thanks, or very rarely. The idea of giving gratitude for something small or something big, nah, they don't do that. They have what is called the spirit of entitlement. I deserve this. You owe me. Society owes me. And if they don't get their way, they pout, they whine, and they complain because they think they're being robbed of something. And so, I mean, just think of it like in our world. There are billions of people living on our planet. God provides food. Do you know there's enough food to feed everyone? I know there's some people starving. It's not from a lack of food. It's a distribution problem. And there's some pretty serious sin that creates that scenario. But yet, the miracle of God feeding humanity, just this one point. Look how very little thanks is given even for meeting this human need. I mean, we see food and what do we do? We just shove it in our face. The idea of actually giving gratitude for God, eh, I don't look weird, or I'm just not interested. I don't think that way. And of course, it happens in all of life. You see, God, you know what he wants? He is seeking to bless your life. He gives you gifts. So not only that you enjoy the gifts, but you love the giver. You and I are created in God's image. He wants us to know him, to love him. He blesses our lives, and it's meant to give gratitude back to him, which is a form of worship. But in the last days, folks are going to be ungrateful. They will also be unholy. The word holy means to be set apart. And so how it works is God calls people to himself. They're redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. They believe in Jesus. Did you know if you're a Christian, you are holy? What does that mean? Set apart to God. To love Him, to enjoy Him, to represent Him. In the last days, though, people will be unholy. They're set apart to anything or anyone but God. And furthermore, uh, when you're in an unholy condition, even the standards of common decency just go out the window. And then notice in verse 3, they will also be unloving. Uh, This is an interesting word, uh, Greek word storge. It's used twice in the New Testament. Um, They have a a negative in front of this. This is a storge. It means without family love. This word speaks of a love for family, a social love, even a patriotic love. But in the last days, this kind of love, it goes away. Um, the common affection that should exist, it'll be absent. I'd imagine that you probably heard the news this past week. Got a young mom, two girls, Kerrville, Texas. She takes that two-year-old and that one-year-old, straps them in those car seats, and she leaves them in the car, in the sun, for 15 hours. They're crying, screaming. She apparently made the comment, They will cry themselves to sleep. And they cried themselves to their own deaths. What's going on? Please find out about this. She lies to them. In the last days, people will be unloving. And don't think that, oh man, it's just terrible now and it hasn't been bad back then. We always think that our generation is as bad as it gets. Well, just read history. I can assure you there's been a lot of evil that's been going on for a long period of time because in the last days, it is going to be difficult. Uh, Even in the time of Paul. uh, So we know the Roman emperor, a guy by the name of Nero. He is a maniac and a half. And we've talked about him before. But uh, Nero, a real interesting guy here, uh, he had a... He he was married, but he had this mistress. Her name was Papea Sabina. 
And Papaya Sabina always tried to manipulate Nero and trying to convince him, you need to divorce your wife and marry me. And he really wanted to do that. That just sounded like a good idea to him. There was just one problem. His mother, Nero's mother, mother, the powerful Agrippina, and she was against it and said, no, you will not. So what would, what's happening is Papaya, she would just mock him, apparently called Nero, you're a ward of your mother, trying to manipulate him. And so Nero, you know, like he's hearing from his mother, he's got his mistress on the side. What do you do? Well, he tried to send his mom away to distant estates and send her on these long vacations because he wanted her out of her hair, out of his hair. And, you know, Agrippino, she was grieved by this. And, but then everything seemed to be getting all better because her son threw this lavish festival for her, a big banquet in Bayi, and they were celebrating. She was all decked out. They had all this uh, great food, this banquet. And, I mean, Nero was very affectionate with her, giving her hugs and kisses in public. And she's like, wow, great. We have got it. We've got resolution, and we're moving forward. I mean, Nero went, he outdid himself. Did you know that he actually had a boat made for his mother? And so at the end of this festival, she was placed on this boat. There's just one problem with this, uh, this uh, voyage and this vessel that he created. He had it designed so that it would collapse and break down in the middle of the sea. And it did. But somehow, Agrippina makes it. I don't know if she's hanging onto a board. Some of her servants rescue her. But she somehow makes it through this situation. Now, when Nero heard the news, he was completely fearful for his life. He thought that his mother might turn the army against him or take all of her servants and basically try to to kill him or run him out of uh, Rome. So Agrippina, on the other hand, decided her best way that she would survive this and her vicious son is to pretend as if she did not suspect Nero's treachery. And she should have. Because she was wrong. Nero dispatched one of his assistants and three of his high-ranking military officials. He sent sent them to her home where they beat her with clubs and they ran a sword through her. See, in the last days, friends, people will be unloving, as if they have no heart. And look at also verse 3. They'll be irreconcilable. They will not allow for other people's mistakes or weaknesses. They're unyielding. They're unrelenting. They will simply refuse to forgive. No matter what uh, opportunity is available to them, they simply won't do it. They can't admit wrongdoing. They refuse to forgive offenses. And they remain at odds with so many people. It shouldn't surprise you when you find the irreconcilable. And notice this. They will also be diaboloi, malicious gossips. Diaboloi is where we get our word devil. It is the nickname for Satan. And Satan works by bringing lies and entrapment. And here it used, it's used as an adjective to spread falsehoods, to slander individuals, to enjoy spreading gossip, gossip and malicious reports about others, to destroy another's good reputation. It's like a perverse pleasure, and it shouldn't surprise you wherever this might creep up. It can show up in your community, in your church, at your, in your faculty, in your family, at your business. Don't be surprised what Paul is writing to Timothy. In these last days, you got folks that are malicious gossips. They're, whether they're trying just to harm you, vent their anger, express their jealousy or hatred. Friends, in the last days, these will be some difficult times. Don't get thrown off. And then notice what else he says. They will be 
malicious gossips without self-control. This means they cannot restrain their actions, their feelings, or their words. They're kind of like a driverless car that's careening down the road, and it just crashes into whatever is in front of them. In the last days, people will be without self-control. They're like they become a, a slave to their own passions and their ambitions. Self-control is so critically important. Do you know that when they, Paul describes the fruit of the Spirit, that the Spirit of God brings self-control, the ability to say no, to kind of direct your course. Self-control is so critically important. There's a guy by the name, uh, psychology, psychologist Richard Nesbitt. He's the world's greatest authority on intelligence. And this is what he said about self-control, that he'd rather have his son be high in self-control than intelligence. Because according to Professor Nesbitt, self-control is, a, is the key to a well-functioning life because our brain makes us easily susceptible to all sorts of influences. So like right now, pornography is destroying millions of lives. And it's like this magnet and it just attracts. And yet you could stay away from it. God offers self-control. You make the choice. But in the last days, people will have no self-control. They will just give themselves to whatever they want, because after all, they're a lover of self. Pretty interesting. In 1970, there was a guy by the name of Walter Michel, and he did this classic experience where he got a bunch of four-year-olds, and this is what they did. He uh, he'd had these four-year-olds, and he placed in front of them a, on a, a plate with a marshmallow on it. And this is what he told them. Listen, uh, here's the marshmallow, and I don't want you to eat it, and I'm going to come back in a little bit, and if you do not eat the marshmallow, I'm going to bring you another marshmallow, and then you can eat both marshmallows. But if you can't wait for the marshmallow, like you just really have to have it, like you can't live without the marshmallow, ring this bell, I'll come in, and you can eat the one marshmallow, but you don't get another. Got it? And so then they filmed these four-year-olds, and they first they would try to look away from the marshmallow, they did whatever they could to try to resist it. Uh, some would ring the bell right away. Others, I mean, they would go through all sorts of antics to resist eating the marshmallow, waiting for the professor to come in with the other marshmallow. What is fascinating about this, though, is that he continued to study these individuals, noting how they responded at four years old to the degree they could exercise self-control. And this is what they found. Listen to this. The children who waited longer went on to get higher SAT scores. They got into better colleges and had, on average, better adult outcomes. The children who rang the bell the quickest were more likely to become bullies. They received worse teacher and parental evaluation 10 years on and were more likely to have drug problems at age 32. And so his conclusion is this. It pays to work toward the future instead of living for instant gratification. But think of our society right now. We are all about instant gratification. If we have to wait 20 seconds, something's wrong, right? And we are living in the last days. It explains so much of the problems that are out there. And we got to be serious about this. Are we encouraging a culture, I want it and I want it now? Friends, you might be setting some folks up for failure. Look what else he says in the last days. They will be brutal. Has the idea of savage, like acting like a wild beast. And you attack people. You tear them to pieces, whether with your mouth or even with your hands. And in our American culture, 
We're so used to brutality. I mean, think of just the typical American and how much just brutality and violence is watched on a weekly basis. I mean, we call it entertainment. We have become numb to it. It says in the last days, people will be brutal. They will be haters of good. They know what's good, but they despise it. They will not have it. And he says, verse 4, they'll be treacherous. They're like traitors. They are willing to betray anyone. If this will enhance my standing, it'll enrich me. It'll make me happy. It gives me an opportunity to express my vengeance. You know what? I'll be treacherous. In the last days, it'll happen. They'll be reckless. Has the idea they'll be careless, headstrong, rash. They'll act without thinking. They will not process the consequences for their behavior, at least not at the time. There will be reckless. They will be conceited. Has the idea that you just have this puffed up opinion about yourself. You're too cool or too good. You have an exaggerated importance in your own mind. And he says, finally, they will be lovers of pleasure. They just think of their own desires and they go after it. After all, they're lovers of self. And friends, this is us, isn't it? This is our condition. What we just read here is an accurate description of not only the obstacles in this world, but kind of the war that is waged within our own souls. And so this idea of living a hedonistic life, that's so prevalent. And look at what the outcomes are. I mean, in our culture, for instance, do you know that we've killed millions of babies before they were born? Let's take it for face value. And it's, well, it's a choice. We... Uh, Take the idea of a family as God has set it up, and we're going to reject it. We'll normalize fornication, homosexuality. We'll make, normalize any sexual perversion. It's coming. Just like the normalization of homosexuality, all sorts of sexual perversion is just out there. It's all fine. What's happening is we're moving people just to you live for yourself, self-indulgent, uh, the whole idea of social and family concerns that's going out the window, and we are taking a quantum leap into deterioration. And friends, it shouldn't surprise you because why? In the last days, there will be difficult times. Pretty sobered. But then, in the midst of this devastation of depravity, it's kind of like we have this shining gem on the black cloth of sin. Look at verse 4. He says, this is how people will be. They'll be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. This is the only hope for humanity. That we come to a position where we realize and understand and begin to live in the love of God. What we just described is misdirected love. And we have looked at corrupt relationships. What God is saying here is that really you and I... We need someone who can desperately fix our condition, who can fix all the brokenness in our relationships and deal with this great chasm that exists between God and humanity. And God has done just that through the sending of his son. God is so committed to us. He demonstrates great love that he actually sends his son to literally die for us and to rise again and give any who believe true life in him. You see, the gospel is the only solution that can address this radical problem of sin. And what the gospel does is it introduces us to the love of God. 
We realize that Christ came. Why? Because of the love of God. We begin to understand we are unconditionally loved. Even in our sin, God loves us unconditionally because he's united us with himself. He wants us to know this love, live this love, don't believe the lies. And it brings transformation in our life as we grow in the love of God. We love, 1 John 4, 19, why? Because he first loved us. You want to see love in your life? You want to see love in your marriage, with your family, and your kids, in your church? We love because he first loved us. You grow to know and experience the love of God. Guess what happens? You begin to express that love to others. And this is the key, friends. Loving God is the key to living well in a fallen world. Loving God is the key to living well in a fallen world. The love for God, it's cultivated by remembering the gospel and God's faithfulness. By being renewed and strengthened by God's grace. It's love of God is cultivated by just being refreshed by other believers who love God as well. Fellowship is not just eating pizza together. Fellowship is eating pizza together and somehow encouraging one another with the love of God. That's what true fellowship does. Remember what Paul said, 2 Corinthians 7, 6, But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us with the coming of Titus. Titus actually brought refreshment. How? By reminding them of the love of God. Think of the power of the love of God. Romans 5, 5, it says, And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. You see, God loves us so much that he actually places his Holy Spirit in us. Ephesians 1.13, he seals us with the Holy Spirit of promise. And the Spirit of God creates love, strength, the ability to forgive, the ability to love, to exercise self-control. It's the gift that comes from God. It's love. We're lo- when loving God is the key to living well. Or like Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, he says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. Just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us and offering in a sacrifice as God, to God as a fragrant aroma. It's kind of like that on the altar of incense. And that smoke is rising up. When you and I express love, love to others, love to God, it's worship. It is pleasing. It's a fragrant aroma to God. And what happens is you find that loving God and reading and studying his word, it will develop a moral compass in your life. And you will be able to navigate all the obstacles in this life. But friends, loving God is the key to living well in a fallen world. You need to understand it's kind of like loving God brings color to a black and white picture. Why is it so hard to walk with God in this fallen world? Well, look at all the difficulties, the 19 that he just outlined. But there's something else, and we'll look closely at this next week. There is a great deception that exists. Look at verse 5. Instead of folks being lovers of God, you will also have this. Folks that are holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, he said, avoid such men as these. You're going to have folks that are going to look real religious. They might wear robes. Frankly, they might even have their office in a church. Friends, if they are not proclaiming the gospel, that people are sinners, Christ is the Savior, and you must trust in him, it's a message without power. 
You see, there is no true relationship with God apart from a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Go ahead and try it, but you will fail. The only way you really can know God is by trusting in his son, Jesus Christ. And when you got folks, whether they're setting themselves up with religious robes or they're just trying to be ultra cool and just kind of keep you entertained, but they never preach the word, never share the gospel, you need to understand that is a message without power. He says, avoid these false teachers. And kind of setting up disguises and images, and it happens in the religious world all the time. It's pretty interesting at the, uh, they had the G8 summit in 2013, and they held it in Enniskillen, Ireland. So the most powerful leaders of the world all gathered for this G8 summit. President Barack Obama, German Chancellor Angela Merkel, uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin. And they came to this town in Ireland, and um, the town in Ireland had actually gone through a serious depression. Many of the businesses had closed and had been closed and locked up for over a year. But the leaders in the community said, this is going to look bad. We are on the world stage. And so what they did is they actually put pictures on all the closed storefronts to make it look like these businesses were thriving and packed out with goods and people. You see that right there? That looks like, wow, lots going on there. Those are actually just pictures. The place is actually boarded up. But they wanted to create the image that there was a lot of life and a lot of good things going on when in actuality it was dead. It is the dangers of false religion. And he says, this deception is great. And we'll look at it next week. But you need to avoid false teachers like this. What Paul is doing is saying, Timothy, you need to understand that in your ministry, you're going to live life in the midst of some great difficulties and obstacles. And yet, God's plan remains the same. That those who have been rescued become rescuers. God reaches a troubled world through people who are transformed by grace. You know that you're transformed by grace when you start to begin to be a lover of God. Lovers of God become God's light to a fallen world. And this world that we live in, it is in such great need for people who just believe know, rest in, and enjoy being loved by God. Friends, there is only one hope for this world, and his name is Jesus Christ. There's a guy by the name of Lee Eklov, and he writes of this time where uh, his neighbor, uh, she had this cat that was like 20 feet up in one of these really tall pine trees, and somehow he got up there and couldn't get down. And the cat didn't stay up there one day, two days. It had been up there three days started raining really hard. The neighbor was really worried about the cat. She didn't know what to do. Lee saw the situation. Another neighbor did too. They decided, you know what? This neighbor had this really long extension ladder. So he put it up against the tree. Lee held it. And this neighbor climbs up this tree in the midst of this rain because the cat hadn't eaten in three days. And it's just up there in this tree. Now, you would think that to be rescued uh, by this guy that's coming up there, that that cat would be like, oh, finally, someone noticed me and cared for me. Well, quite a different reaction. The cat was hissing, trying to scratch, biting, you know, being vicious. The neighbor had to put a towel over the cat's head and literally pry the cat off the branches and bring it down. And friends, that's really a lot like when the obstacles of this world have actually got their hold in you. Friends, some of this stuff runs deep. 
And you might even even you hear the message of the gospel. And when people bring truth and love and saving nature, knowledge of Jesus to you, don't be surprised if some of these people are fighting and hissing and cussing and mad at you and want to alienate you. Because these are difficult times in which we live. But the obstacles, they may make us obstinate. But the love of God, when you just rest in it and just trust in it, just believe in Jesus. Just let go of this sin, and he'll bring life to you. Because, friends, after all, loving God is the key to living well in a fallen world. Let's pray. Lord, this is such a difficult passage, and yet so descriptive of time, the last days. And Lord, for someone who has come here today who has trusted in themselves, perhaps... They are described by some of these aspects in this passage. Maybe you've been pursuing them for some time, drawing them to yourself. Would they just pray with me and say, Lord, I want to turn from self and being a lover of self. I get it. You love me and you love me so much that you've sent Jesus. And this morning, I believe in him. I confess I'm a sinner and I'm trusting in Jesus as the Savior. And Lord... For all of us who do believe, would you help us cultivate a rich and deep love for you? May we recognize the most important aspect of our life is that we are joying you, knowing you, and loving you. So that you might express your love through us. So Lord, only you can do this. Give us grace and strength, wisdom and perspective. And help us to abide in Christ and to live in your love. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.